good morning. It's good to see you this morning as we continue looking through the book of Luke, challenging us to live against the flow. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, I pray that each one would be encouraged and strengthened in our relationship with you. Help us to recognize your faithfulness and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Survival experts say that someone who is stranded in the wilderness needs four things to survive. They need shelter, water, food, and hope. You see, without hope, we won't survive. Today's passage from Luke chapter 7, we find stories of two people who found their hope in God. In the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 7, we see the story of a godly soldier in a hopeless situation. Now, I intentionally use the term godly because he definitely had characteristics that were good characteristics in his life, although we don't know his full background. But as we go through the story, I'll trust that you see why I use that adjective. And the character of this man, this centurion, shone brightly in a very difficult circumstance. The Romans were occupiers. They were enemies of Israel. But the centurion got along well with the Israelites, with his enemies. And he demonstrated good character. Now it's interesting, uh, centurions are only mentioned just a couple of times in the New Testament, in the Gospels, but when they're mentioned, they're always seen in a positive light. But this morning we're going to begin in the first of our two stories here, looking at some of the character traits of this centurion and how God provided hope in a hopeless situation. We see that this centurion demonstrated love. Let's look together at the first five verses of Luke chapter 7. It says, Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now that's Jesus, and if you remember from chapter 6, we looked at some of those things he taught about how we are to live. Last week we looked at loving our enemies. So continuing on in verse 2, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So we see the love of this centurion. We see that he loved his servant. Now the word translated servant here literally means a slave. And it's estimated that half or even more of the population of the Roman Empire at that time were slaves. But this man treated this servant or slave like a son. In verse 2, Luke says that the servant was dear to the centurion. He was highly regarded. And the centurion gave that high regard to this slave, and it's a picture of a distinguished guest at a banquet. Later in verse 7, 
the word that the centurion used when he was referring to his slave literally means child or son. So we see that this centurion loved this slave like his own son. And if you look at, though, what the culture's idea of slaves were, they were considered a tool. I believe it was Aristotle who said that that slaves are living tools. But this centurion had a different attitude towards people. And he loved this slave. Not only that, he loved his enemies. Again, the Romans were considered the enemies. They were occupiers and the Jews had no time of day for the Romans. They were a necessary evil since the Romans were the world powers. The Romans and the Jews were definitely at odds. And the Jews would seek out any way they could to show the Romans in a negative light. But these same Jews that hated the Romans loved this centurion. Why? Because obviously he loved them. He treated them with respect. He built a synagogue for them. Now these, their feelings toward this centurion were so strong that, that when they went to Jesus, they stated that the centurion deserved to have his request granted. He deserved to have Jesus heal his slave, his servant. Now I want to stop here for just a second. And, and it showed their passion toward the centurion, but it was an incorrect understanding of man's relationship with God. The, the centurion sent these Jewish leaders to come to speak to Jesus when he had heard of the miraculous power that Jesus had. But when they went, they said, you need to do this, Jesus. This man deserves your action. This man deserves your favor. But we need to recognize that we can do nothing to earn God's favor. His compassion and His forgiveness are based solely upon His grace in our lives. But culture wants to teach us, well, you deserve these things. And while we could say they were well-meaning, they misunderstood completely the relationship between God and man. And it is so vital that we understand what that relationship is like. It is a grace and mercy relationship. God has shed His love upon us, His mercy and His grace for us to provide the hope of eternal life. So we see that this man loved his servant. He loved his enemies. But we also find that he demonstrated humility. In verses 6, in the first part of verse 7, we read, Then Jesus went to them, and when he was already not far from the house, the or went with him, excuse me, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. So Jesus, the, the 
he, the centurion sent these Jewish leaders to come and to talk to Jesus, and Jesus and the leaders started to go to the centurion's house. But on the way, the centurion had sent some people from his household to stop Jesus before he came into the house. Now, there's, there's a part of that, an understanding of the Jewish law and customs that a Jew was not to go into a Gentile house. If they went into a Gentile house, they would be considered ceremonially unclean. And that may have been part of of why the centurion stopped Jesus, but actually it was much more than that. He did not consider himself worthy. And you see twice in those two verses, in verse and verse 6 and then in verse 7, that, that the centurion said, I am not worthy. Verse 6, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. And then in verse 7, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. And it's fascinating, there are actually two different words that we translate worthy. In verse 6, The centurion was saying, I'm not important enough for you to come. And then in verse 7, the word that we we interpret worthy is actually, I am not good enough or deserving of your coming to my house. Now the centurion, the Romans, were the conquering people. This was just a a Jewish rabbi. But yet this centurion recognized that he was unworthy to be in the presence of Jesus. Now the scripture doesn't talk about what he believed fully as far as Jesus being the Son of God, the Messiah, and obviously the Romans had a different view of that than the Jews. We don't know as an individual exactly what he thought, although we're going to see his faith stand out here in just a moment. But he lived a life of humility, although he lived in a position of amazing and powerful authority. Now the centurions... They were leaders in the Roman army. They, they oversaw a hundred people, hence the term centurion. Now the regular people in the army got a decent wage, but the centurion's wage was far above that of the regular soldiers. And the authority that they wielded was very powerful. But even though he was part of the conquering people and a leader in a very powerful army, he recognized the importance of humility and looked at himself in a far different light than others looked at him. He demonstrated humility. The Jews that went to see Jesus said, oh, he's worthy, and he was like, no, I'm not. He looked for God's mercy while the Jews looked at his power, that centurion's power. And we also see that he demonstrated faith in the last part of verse 7 through verse 9. 
It says, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. It's interesting, this is one of only two times in the Gospels where Jesus says someone had great faith. The other time is found in Matthew chapter 15, and it was a Gentile woman who had a daughter who was demon-possessed. And as she demonstrated her great faith, Jesus took that demon out of her daughter. Both of the times that great faith is mentioned, it's mentioned about a Gentile, not a Jew. And here in in this passage, Jesus said, I haven't seen faith like this anywhere in Israel. The Israelites, the ones who were supposed to be the ones with faith and looking to God, but... It was two Gentiles that demonstrated great faith. Here the centurion and then the woman in Matthew 15. And Jesus was amazed at the faith of the centurion. What was Jesus' response? We see the hope of Jesus in a hopeless situation. Verse 10 says, And those who were sent... Returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Jesus stopped there. He didn't go to the house. But he stopped there, and when those people from the centurion's household came back, this slave was healed. Jesus provided the hope that only God can provide. And the centurion recognized that his only hope was in what Jesus could do. And Jesus healed the servant. That feeling of hopelessness had to be so hard for the centurion. I mean, he was a man with authority and power and could have pretty much anything that he wanted. But he came to a place where he needed more than he himself could provide. And he looked to the one who could give hope. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we see the the hope that God provided for this centurion. But Jesus immediately following shares another. Well, Luke is the one who shares the story of Jesus So they're in Capernaum, and then they go to this town called Nain. And here in this little town called Nain, he meets a grieving woman or widow with a hopeless future. You see, this widow faced a difficult day and a bleak future. Verses 11 and 12 of Luke chapter 7, it says, Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. We're going to see in these seven verses here, verses 11 through 17, a couple meetings. 
The first meeting here is between the crowd that was following Jesus and the crowd that was part of the funeral procession. One crowd enjoying the teaching of Jesus and the miracles that he was performing. And wherever Jesus was going, large crowds were following, and it had to be a buzz. What's going to happen today? Is he going to perform miracles? What's he going to teach us? What's going to be the, the discussion between him and the religious leaders? I mean, they were coming. This is going to be exciting. What's happening today? But while they were entering the gate of this town, there was another crowd. And this crowd, a very somber crowd, a crowd mourning the death of this young man. And so these two crowds meet. This widow had walked this path before. Although we don't know the timing, she had probably walked through that same gate on the way to bury her husband. They would have their burials outside of town. Obviously, graves were unclean, and so they would have a designated place where they would go, and, and they would bury on the same day. And so her son had just died, but, and again, we don't know the time frame. But she had taken that same walk to bury her husband. And now it was her only son. And you notice how Luke emphasizes that it was her only son and that she was a widow. You see, not only did she walk that path before, but she faced a difficult road ahead. She had faced the pain of losing both husband and son, but she also lost her hope for the future. In that culture, when a husband died, it was the responsibility of the firstborn son to take care of his mother. In that culture, she wouldn't just go out and get a job. If you remember Jesus when He was on the cross, what happened when He was there on the cross and He looked at Mary and the Apostle John and He said, Behold your son, behold your mother. Giving John that responsibility that Jesus would no longer take upon Himself as He died on the cross. And then knowing that as he, after He rose again, He would be shortly after that going to heaven. But this lady had no one to take care of her. She was facing a prescription of poverty. And so she had a difficult path, but she faced a difficult road. But in the midst of all this, we see something very important that every one of us needs to recognize, and that's this, that God's timing is always perfect. Jesus and his entourage didn't just happen to meet the funeral procession at the gate by chance. It was part of God's perfect timing. He was also perfect in his timing of the son's condition. 
You know, what would have happened if he would come to town a couple days earlier and the, and the young man was sick but hadn't died yet and he could have healed him. But yet, in God's perfect timing, he met the funeral procession. Now, three times in the Gospels we see that Jesus brings people to life from, from the dead. Probably the most familiar one is that of Lazarus. And if you remember the story from John 11, Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick. Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, sent a message to Jesus, Lazarus is sick. And what does it say that Jesus does? He waits a couple days. And then he goes. And what did Mary and Martha say? Jesus, if you would have just been here sooner, our brother would not have died. Did Jesus uh, make a mistake? Was he foolish in waiting? No. His timing is perfect. The other one where Jesus raises someone from the dead other than Lazarus and this young man here that we're reading about in Luke chapter 7 is a little girl named Jairus' or Jairus' daughter. And if you remember that story, they, they sent to Jesus, Jairus had sent people to Jesus to see if he would come and heal his daughter. But what happened on the way? There was a lady with an issue of blood. And there's crowds all around Jesus, but this lady, she says, if I just touch the hem of his garment, and she did that. And Jesus stopped and he said, who touched me? And the disciples were like, Jesus, <laughs> there's a throng of people, everybody's touching everyone. But that lady said, yes, it was me. And he stopped and he spent time with that lady. And obviously not a very long period of time. But in that time frame when Jesus was told about the need of Jairus' daughter and the time when he arrived, the girl had died. Once again, Jesus' timing. You see, Jesus is always perfect in his timing. And his timing is always perfect in our lives. Although, how often do we think that he's too late? Jesus, if you would have just handled this sooner, I would not have had to go through the pain that I'm facing. Jesus, if you would have just... Jesus... But Jesus' timing is always perfect. And there's a couple things that are so important to understand in that. First of all, sometimes he allows circumstances to get more dire 
so he can demonstrate more power. And the second thing that's so important for us to notice, even though going through that valley can be so hard, is this. If we are exempt from difficulties, we will miss opportunities for our faith to grow. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Just listen as he is sharing to this church in Corinth. And he says this in verses 8 and 9. For we, and that's Paul and the people traveling with him, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Catch what he's saying there? We are burdened more than we can handle, even to the point where we wonder if life is worth living. But Paul goes on in verse 9, he says, Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Paul recognized that those burdens that he and the people with him were facing, so great that in their own strength and power, were overwhelming. But they could recognize And see the power and compassion of God in the midst of their circumstance. We see the importance of understanding that God's timing is always perfect. And we see that Jesus saw her need and he felt compassion. Verse 13 says, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Why could he say do not weep? Because he had a solution to a problem. Have you ever told someone, hey, don't cry. (laughs) Uh, We don't have a solution, but just stop that. (laughs) He had the solution. He showed compassion. And it's interesting, he showed compassion here when it was not even requested. Now the centurion in the first story, he requested Jesus' help. This lady, she felt beyond help. There was nothing anyone could do. But Jesus had compassion. He saw her. He had compassion on her. What is compassion? Compassion is loving concern for people in need. I heard compassion described as your pain in my heart. And that's what Jesus felt for that lady. Psalm 145 in verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. And by the way, the book of Lamentations, the name shares. It's a lament. All of the horrible circumstances of life for the nation of Israel. But right in the middle of it, It's five chapters long, and in the middle of chapter 3, Jeremiah, who wrote Lamentations, writes this, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Christ's compassion for this widow. 
And then we see the hope of Jesus when facing a hopeless future in verses 14 and 15. It says, then he came, that's Jesus came and touched the open coffin. By the way, when he touched the open coffin, he, would beca- he became ceremonially unclean. And I'm sure people around gasped. What is he doing? But you see, it's never wrong to do right. And Jesus' compassion caused him to do what no one else could do. So he touched the open coffin and those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So when he was dead, sat up, and, and he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he, Jesus, presented him to his mother. Now, one thing that we could spend the next hour talking about, what did the young man say? The Bible never tells us. Obviously, it's not important for us to know. But did he talk about the weather? Or was he hungry? I don't know. Or was he saying, why are all you people here? Who knows? Just an interesting little thought. But here we see the meeting of two sons. The widow's son who was dead but would live. And the son of God who was alive but who came to die. And what we find here is that Jesus gave hope for a hopeless future in that widow's life. A hopeless future for her that God changed the direction of that future. But he also provides a hope for a hopeless future in our lives. We call these resurrections, and they were, but in many ways they were more of a restoration. Because Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, and the widow's son would all physically die again but the promise that God gives to us is a promise of an eternal resurrection with a glorified body you see God offers a permanent resurrection John 5 24 says most assuredly I say to you that he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. As Jesus restored the young man's life it's a preview of our resurrection in Christ for those who have put their faith and trust in him. But our resurrection is a resurrection to a glorified body. That young man would die again, but with the resurrection that God promises to each of us who put our faith in Christ, that resurrection is an eternal resurrection. We will live forever. So what was the response of the people? Verses 16 and 17 says, Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people And this report about him went throughout all Judea and the surrounding region. We see several parts to the response of the people. We see that the people feared as they witnessed the power of God. They glorified God, saying God has visited his people. 
They considered Jesus a great prophet. Now, while some would come to the point where they believed that he would, was the son of God who came to take away the sin of the world, many of them, while amazed at his miracles and intrigued by his teaching, would never come to the place where they said, truly he is the son of God. By the way, another centurion said that at the cross. But for us, there's two things that I want us to think about. The first is this. If you've, been, if you've never had a time in your life when you've asked Jesus Christ to forgive your sins, the first step is to recognize who he is. Because if Jesus Christ is not the perfect son of God, he could not provide the sacrifice that would cover the penalty of our sins. Who is this Jesus? Is he a good teacher? Or as they said here, a great prophet? Or is he the son of God who came to take away the sins of the world? Second is this. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, as you face difficult circumstances, and every single one of us will, heart-wrenching issues that we face. Can we look to the one who brings the hope? The hope that only he can bring. Now the tears and the sorrow are real. But even in the midst of the valley, we can look to the God who has compassion, who loves us, who can provide us hope in the midst of a difficult time. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as Almighty God, you love us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize that you are our hope, that you are the one, the only one that can provide salvation for eternity as well as hope for today. Lord, help us to look to you for our strength and for our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.